past 10 years, internet and other digital technology has made a powerful impact on the way we interact with the world and with each other. In many ways, it's made our lives easier. In other ways, it's making them infinitely more complicated and difficult. Today, algorithms power many of our most popular devices and platforms, such as GPS navigation and social media. But as our guest today will explain, applications of computers and the process of supporting them are much older than we imagine. The first algorithms were developed in the 14th century and have always been characterized by intentional and unintentional exclusion and inequity. How do we go about remedying these effects moving forward? Robert Elliott Smith is the author of Rage Inside the Machine, The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All. Robert is an artificial intelligence expert and has worked with organizations across the public and private sector. He's currently a senior fellow of the computer science faculty at University College London. Having grown up in Alabama during the civil rights movement, he is acutely aware of how bias can seep into algorithms and is dedicated to the pursuit of responsible AI. Robert Smith, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. It's great to be here, Brett. I always like to start these conversations, which tend to go off in unpredictable directions, with a discussion about how authors who write books and have fascinating careers like yours get their start, who they are as a person, how their interests shape their studies and their future careers. So why don't you start there and talk us through how you became the Robert Smith who wrote a book called Rage Inside the Machine. There's a lot of elements to that. One element is that I was kind of a kid interested in both the arts and sciences when I was a kid, but for various practical reasons, I ended up going into engineering. And right near the end of my engineering degree, I was kind of thinking, what, what do I actually want to do with my life? And along came a professor who was working in the engineering department who was working on something called artificial intelligence, which at the time was a pretty weird thing, as this is back in the 80s. I was a sci-fi geek kid, so I, I went there, and, and it seemed like sort of the most philosophical area of engineering I could go into, so it kind of satisfied many of my needs. Many years later, I was thinking about a book about the history of AI because I thought people didn't really know much about where this new thing was coming from. This is still a bit before AI was on the tip of everyone's tongue. And then that material I gathered together, and I was also doing some work in a performance prose group where I wrote short stories. There's a short story that my wife was aware of about when I was a kid growing up in Alabama during anti-segregation busing. A black student who had been shipped in from kind of the ghetto in Birmingham said something to me about my having been bullied by other kids that really changed my life. And she knew about that story and said, that story has to go in your book about artificial intelligence. And I said, why? It doesn't have anything to do with artificial intelligence. She said, no, no. Your book is about bias in AI, and that story is about bias, and it's about why you look at the world the way you do. And that triggered the whole idea that my experiences in Alabama with segregation could be related to the idea of how we're seeing bias in AI, and, and that really inspired me to push forward and finish the book. Well, that's fascinating. I want to back up to something you said right at the beginning, which was that you started out interested in the arts, and you wound your way into engineering. What was the course correction? Like many things in my life, it involves a girlfriend. I was very good at math and science. So I thought as a, as a practical Southern man, you know, in order to get a good job, I'd be an engineer. But I thought I'd always keep a hand in art because I really found art very interesting. I had a girlfriend who was an artist. We were planning on getting married. And that really, I was able to have foot in both camps. Then all of a sudden, 
that relationship went to pot. <laughs> when it did, I was left with no kind of more arty outlet. Then I met a professor who was doing AI stuff. And there's something about AI that's always very philosophical and more related to humanities. And so that provided me with a bridge. But, you know, like many things, circumstances intervene and you end up doing something you didn't expect to do. The reason I ask is that this is ostensibly a podcast about education and work and careers. And so I always want to get that question in because I I feel like people are frequently trapped in somebody else's life when it comes to their careers. But it doesn't sound like the case for you. Sounds like a 50-50 proposition and you've really found a way of integrating your interests. So that's great. So you wrote this book, Rage Inside the Machine. And wow, what a title. I'd like you to just give us the 30,000 foot overview of the book. Why did you write it? What are the key themes that you're trying to develop? Where does it leave you with respect to the future of artificial intelligence? Okay, 30,000 foot. Well, as we all know, there's lots of headlines that come out about AI systems appearing to be biased or influencing people politically to be highly in highly polarized groups or are basically enforcing extremist views and that effectively our algorithmically mediated lives are are being influenced in ways that look a bit like old-fashioned prejudice. I was writing this book about AI and that when that stuff was starting to happen. I kind of knew why because I've worked in AI for so long I kind of understood why and I, I understand that I know that people don't know this but algorithms are while vastly complex and very powerful, or in many ways, very simple-minded statistically. That simple-mindedness leads to reductionism. That reductionism is fine when applied to engineering problems. When it's pointed at people, reduction of people inevitably leads to the kind of prejudices that we're all used to seeing. I got to researching that a bit, and I realized that there was a real connection between algorithms, the computer procedures that are used in AI and in, in our day-to-day lives, a connection between algorithms and their history and actually traditional biases, in particular the eugenics movement. And so, so I found this historical connection, and I thought, aha, here is, here is sort of the vehicle to basically show that the simplifying characteristic of algorithms can very easily and quite often align with treating people in simple-minded ways, which are often like traditional prejudices. Now, with regard to where does this lead me with regard to AI, where it leaves me is that I think we need to rethink the nature of mechanical intelligence versus the nature of human intelligence, and then combine those two things, the human factor and what AI can do for us in more effective ways. I think that we have a tradition of thinking of rational computation as being a superior. But in fact, the reality is, is that human thinking is much more than simply a bunch of logical calculations or a bunch of probabilistic calculations. It's a lot more than that. And we need to rely on that supplemented by the scale and speed that could be provided by computers. So let's get into that a little bit more. There is a line in your book that really has stayed with me. And you talk about there are different ways of things being true. Something can be faithfully true, factually true, or technically true. And those are different things. I'd like you to unpack that, explain it to us. How are these different kinds of truth? How do they look? How do they look to us? Yeah, it's interesting. The English is interesting around the idea of truth. 
you know, truth kind of combines the idea of verity and the idea of fidelity, right? So we say, to thine own self be true, and we don't really necessarily mean tell factual truths to the self. What you mean is be consistent morally to the self. So in the literary tradition of America, you have the idea of truth is beauty, beauty, truth kind of is, is a part of the English and American literary tradition. So we have this, this combination word that represents two things, and it really reflects the idea that the idea of eternal truth and the idea of factual truth can be confused in the way that we look at things. You know, there are truths that are moral truths and are, are, are spiritual truths, and I don't mean that in any kind of fuzzy way. I think that there are aspects of the way that we see the world. And then there could be things that are hard factual truths, like this computer is made of aluminum. Those are hard factual truths. Both those kind of truths are important. And the reason that they're important, I get to this in the book, is that the world is, in fact, radically uncertain. And the amount of time that we know the factual truth is seriously limited constantly. So we have to deal with that kind of radical uncertainty about, in quotes, truth. And we do that through things like our internal narratives that we tell ourselves, social narratives that we all share other tricks that we use to basically deal with uncertainty. So the idea of truth, and I talk a lot about words in the, in the book, we use that word in this very multifarious way because it's a complex concept and it's a complex human concept. And the reduction of, of it down to a binary one or zero for, for things doesn't line up with what, the way we actually deal with the real world. That's interesting. Applying that to the, the question of how algorithms operate, they're good at factual truth and not so good at faithful truthfulness. Is that, is that the way to think about I, it? I think that's true because faithful truthfulness really is a, is a kind of socio-psychological construct. And, and I, that's not to put it down. I mean, I think the thing is, is when we think about socio-psychological constructs for human beings, generally the rationalist point of view would be to say that's an inferior way of looking at the world. You know, it's what you do when you can't find the, or don't know the facts. The reality is, is we usually can't find and don't know the facts. In real life, that's what the truth is. And so we've developed our psychological and sociological ways of dealing with things in order to cope with that. Algorithms largely deal with either truth that's logical, factual truth, if this, then that kind of truth, or they deal with statistical truth, which is the same thing. It's if this, then that with a certain probability. And I talk a lot, of, a great deal about probability in the book and how probability constructs look like they're a way of dealing with uncertainty, but they only really deal with uncertainty where we understand the bounds of things that may happen. They don't deal with the radical uncertainty we deal with. Who would have thought the iPhone would have existed kind of uncertainty, right? It's like before that, the idea that our worlds would be constantly influenced by computers in the way that they are in detail just didn't exist. And it came along and changed everything. So the part of our world that deals with innovations and radical changes and things that we can't see doesn't bend easily to probabilistic or logical approaches. We deal with those things through our sociological and psychological constructs. I want to explore kind of two sides of, of this that you, that you talk about in the book. One is some of the challenges that are raised by this overly scientific view, or I guess we call it scientism. This notion that everything can be reduced into these scientific categories. In that frame, 
talk about your discussion about how your your understanding of this relates to evolutionary theory. And then I'd like you to talk about it in relationship to economic theory, because you spend a lot of time in the book sort of trying to work out your ideas in relationship to kind of market economics. Right. So history of evolution. It's interesting that evolution predates Darwin. So Erasmus Darwin, Darwin's grandfather, effectively talked about the idea of evolution in in pretty explicit terms that aren't that far from where Charles Darwin got to, except Charles Darwin got the mechanism. He figured out the mechanism. But when Erasmus Darwin was talking about it, it was at a time where people were believing in a theory that basically society evolved. And his evolutionary theories were based on the idea of, of social, what we would now call social Darwinism, the idea that societies evolve towards moral good. So Charles Darwin was born into a world where that existed already, but he applied it to the specific instance of biological evolution and came up with the idea of natural selection. Now, it was called natural selection for five editions of Origin of the Species. By the time the fifth edition came around, the social Darwinist had re-entered and basically come up with the idea of survival of the fittest. Right. So all the fittest, Herb Spencer invented that term. And, and it was about social evolution and that that effectively what came out of evolution was the best. And it's a tautology. I mean, the fittest are what survive and what survives are the fittest. If you if you look at it, but it had this moral character. Darwin really liked that. And he included it in the fifth edition and, and has become kind of the way we look at evolution is the things that survive are the best things. That's a circular definition. The things that survive are the things that survive, and then we call them the best things, right? That's not really evolution doesn't work towards optimizing. Evolution works towards adapting to a highly complex environment. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Now, how did this influence economics? We know that our economic theory is not very distant from the idea of survival of the fittest. Effectively, economic market-based economic theory is the marketplace will competitively evolve the best possible solutions. That's the theory of markets. You know, it's the theory of neoliberal economics. So effectively, this theory became entrenched in, in, socio- in many aspects of sociology, including economics. So, but the reality is, if we go back to what evolution really does. Evolution, if you look at it from a more modern perspective, is not solving an optimization problem because there is no optimal. The optimal is constantly unsteady. What it is doing is it's doing the best it can while maintaining sufficient diversity to allow adaptation to radically uncertain events, to things happening that weren't expected, the iPhone emerging, etc. So effectively, the best evolutionary systems are ones that quickly can go new places right? Instead of being stuck in a single supposed optima. And this is similar for economic systems. If you look at economics of innovation, effectively what's going on is, is in order to have an effective system that can evolve to innovations, what you do need to do is have sufficiently diverse providers that effectively when things change, you can make rapid exploitation of that change. If you were to optimize too truly, you'd be very brittle. I'll tell you a really good example. I heard this from a really good writer, Gerd Gigerinzer. There are documents that criticize the German government for having not optimized their ICU availability. The Germans have an extremely high number of ICU beds in the Western world. That is a suboptimal thing to do economically. They should have had fewer. Except when COVID-19 came along, they've basically been the best in Europe. 
because their their medical capacity was was ridiculously high. So it, when this innovation COVID nineteen came along, they were able to to adapt to it more quickly. Societies that had more stringently optimized for the apparent conditions failed more poorly because effectively they they didn't have enough beds. UK has a very low number of beds, and the US isn't that great either. I'm curious about that. I mean, in economic theory, particularly the work of Adam Smith, which is the underlying basis for neoliberalism that you that you referenced, the idea is that this complexity that you talk about in your book and radical uncertainty is the fundamental truth of our existence. And so what we want to do is not try to interfere in that process because there are too many variables. We don't know what the outcome might be. So we allow people to take the resources that are available to them and reconfigure them to meet whatever the current need is rather than imposing some kind of a plan. So did the Germans plan their hospital system? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll give you a really good example. I think that the reality is, is that markets are effective within limitations. The reality is, is that effectively it is a highly complex system and some amount of regulation and some amount of market freedom is appropriate. And, and it's, it's just about, about deciding what the, the right balance is. I'll tell you a really good example is when we had the fairness doctrine in broadcasting, effectively, you know, we had basically a regulatory commission that basically told the broadcasters, this is, this is, you have to adhere to our standard of fairness. And if you don't, you don't get your license. When the Fairness Doctrine began to be torn down in the 80s, the idea was really the marketplace of ideas because bandwidth had expanded dramatically due to cable television and and eventually the internet. And so the idea was that we'd get so many diverse opinions that then people could decide and basically invest themselves in whatever seemed to be the best journalism, in effect, the best information provision. What's happened, I think everyone would agree, is that we are now in a, in a suboptimal place because of the marketplace of ideas. What's happened is, sure, there's lots of provision and there's lots of apparent diversity, but there's no mixing. Effectively, what goes on is everybody, you know, no one would argue that MSNBC and Fox News are good diversity of journalism, right? It's ineffective polarization of journalism. So, so in my mind, what's appropriate is, yes, the marketplace is a good thing. It does promote a certain amount of flexibility in terms of adapting the future. However, we can't count on evolving systems, marketplaces, et cetera, to optimize moral value on their own all the time. They, they don't do that effectively. So there's some balance to be struck. Right now, I think everyone agree, would agree that we're not at a good place with regard to people's informedness. We're in a bad place with regard to that, I think. Let's take this back into the question of algorithms. How do algorithms influence, exacerbate, right. or create that challenge that you just outlined? Well, a really simple example is the Pew Research Center did a study a number of years ago now about Twitter that basically showed that black people in America received news about race much more, like dramatically more than white people. And the reason for that is because algorithms have a very simplified understanding of both us and our content. So they're looking at us and basically saying, 
this person reads stuff like this. I'll just give them more stuff like this. And one of the reasons it does that is it's, it's an advertising demographics model. In many ways, it's an economically optimizing model. So effectively, we get personalized content instead of content that's based on the idea that we want to have an effective system of delivering, say, fair content. You know, So we get highly personalized content. And the, the offshoot of that is that we all get the stuff that we already know and already believe. And in some cases, there can be a ramping up of extremism. There's really good examples. If you go to YouTube and you, this is actually an interesting experiment to do, and it still works last time I checked, is if you go to YouTube and you, you concentrate on a particular subject and then follow links through from comments, et cetera, you'll get to more and more extreme content very, very quickly. You'll go from perhaps conservative, traditionally conservative content to really quite extreme far-right content really, really fast. And it's because the algorithms have such a simplified understanding of the political notions involved and of us. I know at some point we're going to talk about the facial recognition thing. This is related to that is the understanding algorithms have of us are, are effectively like looking at our faces and making decisions about who we are because they're looking at very simplified features. Super interesting. There's an excellent podcast series in the New York Times called Rabbit Hole, The Descent into Extremism via Algorithms is quite shocking, astonishing, really, of especially for people who get kind of they've usually got something going on in their lives, some sort of disappointment or problem or whatever, and they get drawn into this. All of a sudden, the algorithm is helping them to build up a model of the world that explains yeah. the problem they have. Exactly. That's exactly the effect I'm talking about. And, and there are people, I know some people here in London who do studies on the idea of radicalization. And, you know, people who are vulnerable, everybody knows this, people who are vulnerable, and many of us are and isolated, are people who can be persuaded towards extreme views. The provision of content by algorithms is aiding that in, in the extreme. And there's really clear-cut examples of that being the case. If the algorithms weren't as clearly based on this optimizing survival of information fittest idea, if they were more based on a values, journalistic values-based approach, which I think is what needs to be promoted, then, then they wouldn't have this effect. And I really think that the basis of regulation should be in that direction. I'm also openly encouraging all the modern information providers to think about this as a way of doing business, to think about the idea of saying, okay, we're trying to promote good social values, and we're going to make AIs that do that. And I think that, you know, I'm trying to promote the idea. I would love to work on this problem as a scientific problem, because I think it is a real, it's a real science problem. I wonder, it's a scientific problem. I think there are some some folks in the American the U.S. government that increasingly see it as a policy problem as well. How does our regulatory structure help drive this? You talked about the fairness doctrine, you know, and the absence of sort of a requirement on people who, you know, are public actors for the public good and, and using the bandwidth and the so forth that's required to operate internet systems ought to be required to adhere to some sort of approximation of fairness. It kind of though goes back to the values question of, doesn't that presuppose that we can reach an agreement on what those values ought to be? It's an eternal vigilance problem. I was talking to a woman who uh, sits on the on a European Commission board about the future AI the other day, and we agreed that 
when we get back to this idea of the complexity of the human system, of, of both our minds and of our social interactions, that complexity requires this idea of eternal adaptation. We're good at that. Algorithms thus far aren't that great at it. I think in all regulatory bodies, there's the price of eternal visual, because all fixed regulations are probably wrong, or at least highly exploitable. I certainly see this in, in Wall Street. I think that a friend of mine said that it's a Pandora's box. It's a system. The economic system does very effective at finding loopholes in regulations. Right? That's what it's really good at. So effectively, what you need is you need the constant involvement of people to basically say, oh, we tried this. It worked for a while. Now it's not working. We have to try something else. So this price, it's a price of eternal human vigilance, I think is the price. That's really good insight. And I, it's interesting. We're seeing some of that in uh, the COVID crisis, at least from a kind of legislative and regulatory standpoint. You know, Congress hasn't been very good about legislating for 20 years <laughs> yeah. for the legislature to kind of move in adaptation to what's going on in the world. But in the case of COVID, they've actually been pretty nimble, you know, in terms of we passed a bill in March. It did some things right. There are some problems in it. We pass another bill to correct those problems. And then we pass another bill to correct the problems out of that. That's unusual in the time that I've been in government to see that rapid a cycle in legislation. I'm really curious as to whether we could take that and apply it to a whole host of other processes and programs that we operate to kind of correct what are obvious problems. It's a real challenge, though. And I think, as you can see from the debate around, you know, regulating the Internet in the United States, powerful, powerful players are at work on this problem. And once they reach a compromise, they're loath to go back and reopen it. Yeah, compromise is a a word we haven't heard a lot of in recent years. And I, I think this is another symptom of this. Polarization is it prevents evolution. That's what it does. It is a cul de sac that we've run into. I've got to say, in the States, at least, I have no idea how we get out of it. Here in the UK, too, I have no idea how we get out of the cul-de-sac of polarization. I like to think that we could start with the populace and try to, to make the populace better informed and more broadly informed, and that we might make people start talking, because certainly at, at higher levels, we don't have a lot of good conversation going on. And, and without, I make a big point about diversity in the book, diversity is fine, mixing is essential. You got to have diversity and then you've got to have mixing because you don't have that. You, you don't have anywhere to go. That's fascinating. And it draws me back to another idea that you articulate in the book. I've heard it articulated differently and I'm going to say it the way I've heard it before and you can react to it. But the, the rector at the church I attend will frequently say that human beings are not mainly thinking creatures, but desiring creatures. There are things that we desire, and then we kind of work backward from our desire into our reason about how to get there. And I, I thought I, I detected a similar idea in your book about, you know, people kind of leading with their, what they want rather than what they think. That's right. But here's the thing is that I think there's, there's a certain school of thought that would say that that's, that is always pathological, that effectively leading with your gut is, is always inferior to reason. And I don't believe that's true. I think that the reality is, I, tell you, I recommend a really wonderful book. It's The Strange Order of Things by Damasio. 
a wonderful book, and 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 it draws this distinction between the different brains in our body. It's interesting that the brain in your gut, effectively the nervous system within your gut, predates the brain in your head and is semi-autonomous. It basically runs on its own. The, the, the brain in your spine is somewhat similar. Your spine's nerves talk to one another much more than they talk to the central nervous system in order to make you move. Demacio makes this distinction. He says, in these old brains, we have feelings, right? You know, you have feelings in your mm-hmm. guts. He makes those distinct from the idea of emotions. Emotions exist in your head. They're a cognitive impression related to feelings. Now, our feelings and our emotions and our reason are interacting, highly interacting systems. And they interact not with just within us, but between us. And we're social animals. And so this allows us to deal with this in certain worlds. So I guess what I'm saying is that that desiring that we do, the feelings that we have are a part of our effective reasoning. If the world was that purely rational world of if-then rules and probabilities, then they wouldn't be necessary at all. But since it isn't, a gut feeling is yourself telling you something that you can't quite reason about, but you can do something about. Uh, Soros, his theory of investing, if you read Alchemy of Finance, and it, he talks about the fact that his, his, his son pointed out to him at some point and said, your back bothers you when, you when you're worried about an investment. And he wasn't aware of it. But yeah. I think everybody has these things where there's yeah. a subcognitive thought that we right. use in order to cope with things that we're incapable of bringing to the cognitive level. That's not a disability. That's an advantage. Yeah. So, and I'll just to clarify, when my rector says that, what he's trying to say is work on shaping those desires. You know, and this is the this is the central struggle I think is laid out in the in the Hebrew Bible is how do human beings shape their desires so that they get the yes, right yes. desires? And I agree with you. I and it goes back to some of my thinking on vocation and career. I think that we we force people into making a cognitive decision, a high level cognitive decision about what they want to study, what they want to become. We frequently connect it directly to economic outcomes for various careers and professions, rather than starting with the question of what do you desire? I mean, it goes kind of your story a little bit, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I had these yeah. competing desires within me and I followed them into a career rather than making this is- <laughs> make a bunch of money as a computer scientist. So I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. And that's the way that we approach decision-making typically. Hey. You know, I've met a lot of great scientists in my life, and I think most of them have a path like that, a complicated path rather than a simple path. But one of the things I'll say is, is I think something that's a great strength of traditional American education when compared to British education, I'm a dual citizen in both countries, is our educational system, the liberal arts tradition, effectively does allow for people to get lots of inputs and do lots of changes. And I think that's to real strength. I think the British system, by contrast, is much more prescriptive about picking a career and sticking with it, which I think is a disability. I do think that those things are, are true. I want to say more thing, one more thing about guts. Your gut can become pathological, right? You can, you can cling to your emotional feelings about an issue pathologically, and that relates back to this idea of polarization. As a society, what's happened is that we've gone into groups that effectively are clinging to their gut feelings about things and eschewing information and being helped to eschew that information by algorithms that might help mm-hmm. them reason more effectively. Okay, well, that gets me to a really key question 
which you talked about at the very beginning, the relationship between algorithms and bullying. I'd like to hear you talk about that more. That's very interesting. I'm really deeply concerned about algorithms, you know, don't, not yet anyway, don't really create themselves. They are created by people. And we kind of like impose, they are us in a sense in that way. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. And that they are a subset of us. One of the things I point out in the book, which I think is absolutely a shocking reality is, is when in the 1980s, when I was in 1987, because that's where I start the book, the fastest growing degree in America for women studying was computer science. And it was almost at parity. So in a ha- almost, you know, gender parity was almost attained by computer science and was, it was, it was moving rapidly towards parity. Then the internet came along and now the percentage of women computer science graduates is 18%, which is on the par with other engineering disciplines. So effectively all that gain was completely lost. And so effectively the, the people we have programming algorithms I don't think those people are bigots or more sexist than the society that we have. However, we do have a sexist society. And, and so, so effectively, any biases that get introduced, even inadvertently, are going to be in a particular direction. And there's another lack of diversity problem. So algorithms are designed by people. Those people carry with them whatever prejudices they may have. And if they are a subset of people, a definite, clear subset that doesn't reflect the general population, those innate, unintentional biases will be pointed in a particular direction. And, and that's going to make for a not as good world for people who, who don't fit into that particular category, even without human intent. There was a story just this morning in the New York Times on this problem in medicine, and they were specifically focused on treatment of kidney conditions. And the algorithms, they're contained in these bedside devices where they're trying to make decisions about who's a good candidate for a transplant when they've got kidney disease. And one of the factors in that is race. If you're back, you get extra points that score against your suitability as a candidate you know, the same kind of, the same levels of kidney problems, you, you get some extra points against you for a transplant if you're African-American. Sure, there's, there's virtually great. no basis for this in science. Yes, that's right. From a long, long Is time it, ago. Yes, and, it's a social, and also there's a social feedback there. I tell you that the book I most strongly recommend to people to read today is Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. If you're interested in algorithms and their effect on biases, read my book. If you're interested on the nature of biases within science and their history, also read Angela's book. They're a good pair to read together, as a matter of fact. But the thing is, is that in medicine, there are a great many things that are felt to be correlated to, in quotes, race, when actually what they're correlated to is a complex set of sociological phenomena that happen to also be correlated to what we call race. Race is a fairly dubious concept in the first place. I mean, race is a social concept much more than it is a genetic concept. And the book really deals with this in an extraordinary way. So I I really, really strongly recommend that one. But yeah, I mean, biases climb into all sorts of formal systems like the law or regulations of medicine or algorithms, you know, because we can't help it. And so we, we can be eternally vigilant. 
Yeah. So you, you talk about how difficult this is to untangle. Once the bias is there, it's very hard to get out. Why don't you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Well, you know, the, the nature of modern AI, AI, by the way, is a term that means something different every few years. But right now it means massive in what I would call intractable statistical inference. So effectively, we have algorithms that are vast and very difficult to understand that are taking large amounts of data and inferring things about that data. Now, what happens then is deep inside the algorithm, the data or the representation of that data or some part of the algorithmic process may have induced a bias, but it may be so deeply hidden inside the algorithm that you can't really figure out how to repair it. The ultimate example of this is there's a famous example where Google had an image labeling algorithm that labeled an African-American couple gorillas. Wired Magazine came out and showed this, and, and it was pretty shocking. Then Google immediately changed the algorithm so it wouldn't do it anymore. So a few, I think a few years later, Wired went back and looked at the algorithm again, and what they did is they fed it lots of pictures of animals, and they found out that it would not label any great apes by their names that effectively had lost the ability to label great apes. So what they did in order to fix the algorithm is they just took out chimpanzee, gorilla, etc. so that this incredibly offensive mislabeling couldn't possibly occur. And why would they fix it in such a ridiculously draconian way? It's because the algorithm itself was probably incomprehensible. You know, why it did this is probably too hard to figure out because it's deep inside it. And that's the kind of algorithms we have now is, is their, their complexity is overwhelming, but the biases may still be there and they may be impossible for us to see beforehand. So I had a, a conversation along the same lines with Amy Webb, who wrote a book called The Big Nine, and she, she made some similar observations about the challenges here. She also talks about, if I remember correctly, she also talks about sort of self-generative algorithms that change themselves in response to changing needs or new, new information or whatever. Is that a, Where are we on that right now in terms of the continuum of the development of the technology? We certainly have systems that can generate their own code. And, you know, they're of evolutionary type systems that do that systems that do all sorts of things that can generate their own code and make things we haven't seen before. You know, there, there are certainly algorithms that create game strategies, for instance, that we've never seen before. If we judge algorithms by their ability to have emergent properties, then we've, we've been there for a long time. They can have significant emergent properties. Do they have significant emergent properties that are guaranteed to be desirable? No. <laughs> and so the real worry is that we have algorithms that, that have reached a point where we may not understand what they end up doing, but beforehand, we can't see what that might be. And this is another reason that we need to have a rethinking of the relationship between human intelligence and machine intelligence, because those two things need to work together in a cooperative fashion in order to have good effects. Yeah. She talked about it when I interviewed her. She talked about it as this is a fundamentally different type of intelligence that we're dealing with. This isn't, it isn't human. What do you think about that? Well, I think it isn't human. I think that, you know, most AI is based on, its representations are based on either a logical frame or a probabilistic frame. And, and those frames are actually the same thing largely. And they're fairly rigid frames. And you may have 
extraordinary complexity and emergent phenomena, but at the base, they're basically working with fairly hard-edged mathematics. So effectively, it's exceedingly simple at one level and exceedingly complex at another. That complexity is very unlike our complexity. That's the thing I would say is algorithms have significant emergent behaviors. We have, we're made of emergent behaviors, really. It's the thing we do best. Those emergent behaviors are from very different systems and are intrinsically very different. So, so effectively, I think that can we make AI that does stuff that's unexpected and apparently lifelike? Yes. Is it like us fundamentally? I'd say no, because like us goes down to the level of, of the gut. You know, it goes down to a, low, a very, you know, ourselves are not just our brain. Ourselves are our whole self. And in making something that's like our whole self, and I always emphasize this, the idea of psychologically and socially, because we're extremely social organisms, is certainly something we're not quite capable of doing yet. We can make really complicated things, you know, our complexity dwarfs the things we can make. We can make really complicated things, but we can't in any way make anything like us yet, except in the traditional manner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really liked what you said about eternal vigilance. This is a problem we don't solve, or these are problems we don't solve. These are problems to be managed. The most important steps that we ought to be taking to better manage the problem. So the first step, I think, is, is a profound realization about the difference between mechanized, in, mechanized systems of intelligence and our own intelligence and, and understanding that fundamentally. So that's why I wrote the book. That's why the book exists. So, so effectively, it's, it's gaining this understanding. Then it's trying to realize that we need to do our technical mechanisms differently so that they do things like instead of being highly personalized, they're geared towards social values. And then the third thing is we need to set up societal systems of governance and interaction with our machines that are effective. So those are the three stages, understanding, changing our engineering, and then changing our interactions with that engineering. Those are the, the three essential steps. There's a large body of people working on these problems now. There, there are people really thinking about them. The thing that's really lacking in my mind is that first step, is the step of understanding. I don't understand algorithms I've written, right? I mean, algorithms are complicated and hard to understand. I don't mean that kind of understanding. What I mean is lay understanding. We all need a lay understanding of the nature of artificial intelligence and in relationship to our own intelligence and its relationship to society as it's evolved, like the points about prejudice I make. Once we have that, then we can basically, first of all, see ourselves in a better light. And second of all, we can have influence on the policy, right? And on the evolution of how systems are engineered and how we interact with them. That's a great place for us to wrap up this conversation. This is a wonderful book, Raging Thank Slight you Machine. so much. Yeah, and I just encourage people to dive into it. And I think you bring such a balanced perspective. Again, it grows out of who you are as somebody who cares about technology and cares about humanity and cares about how those two things interact. So it really comes through in the book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Robert Elliott Smith, thank you for spending this hour with us. I look forward to following your work and checking in with you again in the future. It was great, Brent. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. 
I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.